Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about how we write campaigns using Two-Headed Serpent as an example. But before we get into all that good stuff, what is happening? I've received a package through the mail from Torchlight Candles. We have a box, a bit smaller than a shoebox, containing called Cthulhu licensed insanity candles. So so how exactly is a candle a licensed Call of Cthulhu product, Paul? How does this work? Well, I can describe the candle. I can't describe the arcane processes by which one gets a license from Chaosium to make a candle. That's beyond my pay grade. I don't know about that. Is it because it smells eldritch when it burns? It does smell strange. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, well, you, you have choices in how it smells well, as well. The you, choice of smelly, tasty brains. Well, one, one is very much a spicy brain, mm. and the other is more of a, a floral brain. Do you want to explain how it looks, Matt? You have a head, minus its top. It's not like it's been to a Mego hairdresser. <laughs> um, you then have a hole or recessed where you can put said brain, different colour brain, inside, thread in the wick through the brain, and then up through the other part of the skull cap. Then there's little blobs or pustules going down the side of the head at regular intervals that kind of denote you've burnt X much sanity as you reach each level. And of course, your brain will start to burn at one point. And, and, and in theory, come out through your eyeballs and ears. Is it'll that come, right? It'll come out through everywhere with that thing. It'll just spew everywhere in all brainy goodness. Spicy brainy goodness. And the brain is a different colour, of course. Yes. A red or green against a normal, traditional, kind of creamy white, candly background for the head. And there's a little secret inside there as well, isn't there? There's buried metal goodness inside your head. So basically, yeah, the Mego have been going around putting implants in people's brains again. Is that right? Yeah, in- implants that look a little bit like a constellation. But no, um, you, you pull out your hidden metal goodness and then you can compare it against a card that will then give you an in-game effect for your investigator. These are not necessarily good, not necessarily bad. And if you want to see what we're talking about, then come on over to Blasphemous Tomes and we'll have some photographs and more information there. Or check out Torchlight Candles. And of course, as we've mentioned in a number of previous episodes, we are busy putting together issue four of the Blasphemous Tome. So remember that if you're a backer at the time of publication, you'll be getting a copy. Woohoo! This is the backer-only fanzine that we produce for these lovely people who give us money via Patreon. If you want to see how you can secure your own copy or copies, do take a look at the show notes. We'll put links in there that not only tell you what levels get what numbers of tomes and what types of tomes, but we'll also give you a little sneak preview of, of what to expect from the latest issue. Yeah, all, all the details of that are on the website, on blasphemoustomes.com. now how we write campaigns we released an episode a while back about how to run published campaigns and we had a few people ask us on the back of this how we go about writing campaigns how you know how we construct them ourselves and we thought well hang on we we've written some and there's one that we wrote entirely between the three of us let's use that as an example now by talking about this it's going to be unavoidable that we broach some spoilers but we'll try and keep those to a minimum but do be aware there may be some spoilers included in this show for two-headed serpent the two-headed serpent just to give you some context is the pop cthulhu campaign we wrote for chaosium came out in 2017 i think it's done all right so far we certainly get a lot of good feedback about it and it seems to be getting some play well we got a uk games expo award for it we got nominated for an any for it yeah and i'm currently running it for the how we roll podcast as well And we'll be having a competition later in the show where you can win your very own copy, a hard copy of The Two-Headed Serpent. Details at the end of this episode and on the website. Let's start off, though, with talking about how we come up with the basic premise for a campaign. Does it involve a dartboard and then just throwing stuff at it until something hits? (laughs) Well, I think the initial impetus with this was Mike Mason contacted us and said, would you write a campaign for Pop Cthulhu? 
So mm-hmm. well, that, that may not be the same reason why everyone goes out and writes a well, campaign. Well, I think it's but... interesting to note here that the pulp rules for Pop Cthulhu were being written at the same time that we were coming up with this. So Mike had got a draft of the rules for Pop Cthulhu, which obviously he sent to us for use for playtesting and so on. But the two were going along to some degree hand in hand. So some yeah. of our playtest feedback from the campaign was also just sort of bouncing off the development of the pulp rules. But I guess where did our initial premise for this campaign come from? I think we decided that serpent people had a very pulp feel to them yeah. and would be an obvious creature for a pulp campaign. There were so many things about serpent people that made them a perfect fit. You know, the fact that they did use magic, but they were also scientists. The fact that they operated on a human scale, but, you know, worked within conspiracies. The fact that they could change their form to look like people. These all played in so nicely to some of the pulp tropes we wanted to use. It's also something that echoed when we were looking at locations and events that uh, were happening in the campaign as well. Stuff that hadn't been used much or if at all before we wanted to do something completely new along those lines as well i mean we were helped with the historical aspect because being pulp cthulhu this was set in the 1930s and you know so much of the published call of cthulhu material is either 1920s or modern day so this gave us a chance to use historical events and historical backdrops that i don't think had been used in call of cthulhu before we ended up looking around for historical events that might have a bearing on the campaign. And I can't quite remember why we settled on it, but looking around at South America, there was the Chaco War that was taking place in 1933. We kind of landed on that as a starting point. I remember the way we did this was we we sat down and had our initial discussion at the late lamented Busker's Coffee Shop in Wolverton, which sadly is, is no longer quite there anymore. We basically sat down there with a laptop, not only made notes, but, but used it to do a number of Google searches and, and look up ideas. We floated 1933 as a base year and then just basically looked up in Wikipedia things that had happened then. For example, you know, you were very keen, uh, Paul, on doing a something that tied in with the early days of the Dust Bowl. Simply because I was reading Grapes of Wrath at the time. Um, so that was a setting that was very fresh in my mind. Equally, the starting one in Bolivia is basically in my head a mashup of indiana jones and the conan film with all the the snake people and so on so that that seemed very pulp to me and i seem to remember matt as well that you were quite keen on doing something that involved the mafia did that come about first of all because you looked at what was going on in 1933 and we we decided we wanted to set it around new york um as a base of operations is that what inspired the mafia aspect of it or did you you know start off with that and we retrofitted it the other way i think it's because we'd settled on new york a bit the one location that has been used in various um, other cthulhu campaigns we use that as the base for the Caduceus operation. We wanted stuff that was happening around that, kind of in the wider city. And being New York, I think I had kind of an untouchables vibe potentially going through my head at the time. And thought, yeah, mooks with Tommy guns, that stinks of mafia. So yeah, we, we want to have some kind of organised crime angle going on here. And that's it. I think when you spot something that catches your attention... You're like, oh, actually, yeah, I could do that. That sounds good. If it excites you, it's like, oh, yeah, that could be a a seed for a whole chapter. But it was interesting to sort of do a bit of research and find those seeds in the period that we could then try and bring to some kind of fruition. Yeah, I, I remember when we were sitting there talking through ideas, we were throwing ideas backwards and forwards and trying to think what would give us plenty of action adventure opportunities in in the background. We looked at all sorts of real-world events that were going on at the time. <laughs> I remember there were so many of them where we looked at them and thought, yeah, I mean, that might be interesting for Call of Cthulhu, but it's got to be a bit too grim for this. We want danger, but we don't necessarily want it to be dark in the same way that Call of Cthulhu is. That's why we decided not to set anything in the Soviet Union, for example. And thankfully it was 20 years on from the Congo stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. 
The other thing that we did, I don't know if you two remember, is I, I think you'd brought your copy of the Encyclopedia Cazuliana with you. It rarely leaves my side. <laughs> I was going to say, does Matt go anywhere without that? We obviously, we were thinking about serpent people as the as the villains in there, obviously immediately looked them up in there. This sort of refreshed our memories about the associations with both Yig and Sarthogua, and also potentially with Gatanathoa, the links to the Velusian Empire on Mu and stuff like that. And we looked at all these elements and thought, oh, yeah, this, this is really good and pulpy. How can we draw all these things together? Hey, guys, what's a cobra crown? That's a great example because, you know, the Cobra Crown became a big element in the the campaign. If it hadn't have been for looking up that entry, it probably wouldn't have occurred to us. Mm -hmm. And I think there are parts of established canon that we kept in if we felt like it. Otherwise, we were just like, no, let's just write over that and just make up something afresh. That's how Moo shifted (laughs) to a different ocean, I believe. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, who cares? We can reinvent this because it's all just fiction anyway. We didn't kind of glue ourselves too much, I think, to any... uh, established canon i did actually write a little bit in the introduction that boiled down to here are the ways we're breaking against what you might have seen in other scenarios if you don't like these here are some rationales for why it might be the case if you still don't like them here's how you can change it to something else we hope that covered all the bases and i remember mike saying to me that he would like to to have set something in new york with a you know a pop scientist and so on so it didn't start in new york but it cuts to new york between chapters and we have that kind of city setting because otherwise we didn't really have a city setting for quite a while yeah the organization that lies at the heart of this caduceus i think it partly came out of this idea of of you know wanting a scientific organization at the heart of it i seem to remember correct me if i'm wrong that i pitched the idea of caduceus to the two of you simply because of the symbol of the caduceus that once we thought about these two warring factions of uh, serpent people that the image of these two snakes wrapped around a staff which isn't actually a caduceus it's the staff of asclepius isn't it but this image of the two snakes seemed to be absolutely perfect and so caduceus was born that's very much our premise if you like and then we plotted out a bunch of locations around the world it's a pulp campaign so it's going to be world spanning and we said okay you can do this one you do this one you like the sound of that one so we ended up with a bunch of chapters and we each went away and started developing our own chapters with some kind of overview of the whole campaign. Yeah, I mean, we come up with some basic ideas of how they were all going to link together. I mean, the Caduceus organisation acting as patrons provided that glue so that we could string a bunch of what would otherwise be disparate adventures together and create some cohesion. But we built up the ongoing plot. I, I, I don't think it, it arrived fully formed. I, th- I think this was something that developed as we developed the chapters. Well, definitely, yeah, because we even reordered them eventually. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of big development that happened as we played through it. So now let's take a look at how we develop the campaign. We've got our premise. Let's see how we actually go about developing those separate chapters and the overall campaign. We each took one of the chapters, you know, as well as brainstorming ideas, you know, we obviously researched around those and found lots of little bits that would fit in nicely. So, for example, I mean, thinking about Caduceus, you know, as soon as we decided the, that it was going to be a medical aid charity, I started thinking about what kind of person would run that charity, and that's where the character of Joshua Meadham came from. He was slightly inspired by Henry Welcome, though Welcome was a very different type of character. And, you know, just little things like the location of the Medium building and the design of the Medium building came because I uh, was looking at a, an article about New York in the 1930s and I wanted a big, imposing, memorable building there. And, you know, there was just some reference to, you know, how before the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building went up, the biggest building, the most notable building on the New York skyline was the New York World Building with this very distinctive dome and so on and thought, right, just nick that. So it kicks off with the scene at the start in the jungles of Bolivia and that whole chapter that I worked on, I want it to be uh, very in the action beginning. Uh, The players are suddenly in above their head. They don't really know what they're doing there. They're just apparently members of a medical organisation. They don't know anything about the mythos and they very quickly come up against the baddies. There's ancient temples and so on. So I wanted a very kind of pulp feel for it and the whole 
Chaco War thing was really just pushed to the background because whilst that was an inspiration for the location, I didn't really feel I wanted to bring much of that in. It allowed yeah. me to have a bit of stuff about soldiers being there and some places having been blown up and so on. Beyond that, I didn't really want to bring that real-world stuff into it, so it was very much just a fantasy pulp setting with some ancient characters. And I had that ancient sorcerer locked in the temple, and I think it wasn't until you know, we were playing that, that we realised that they're perhaps going to actually rescue that character or they're going to be required to bring it back to New York, the kind of mummy, yeah. and that, that character could be awakened. And that actually went on to become one of the three major factions, yeah. uh, Tyranish. Uh, at that point, was male. And then during yeah, development, during I kind of realised that actually, why not make this female? Yeah. You're right. It was. It wasn't until we started playtesting partway through the playtest that we realised Tyranish could be used in other ways. We already had these two factions there. We had the Yig worshippers in the form of Caduceus. We had uh, the Inner Knight, who were the Sathogyo uh, faction. Yeah. The whole thing was about the interplay between the two and the conflicts between the two. But we wanted to have this wild card in there, basically in case we got towards the end of the campaign and the the heroes, being pulp heroes, had managed to eliminate the movers and shakers of the two main ones. And it was just sort of have something else in reserve that we can use, not just as a spoiler or as a wild card, but also as a backup. Yeah, I more just remember it that we had that other character and kind of what can we do with them to make them interesting in the campaign. And yeah. so there were the two factions and we'd got this other wild card and that just kind of suggested that it would be a wild card and this character was totally out of her depth in the new world and the new order of serpent people and was a kind of a, a new force. It wasn't so much by design as just by evolution, really, that that character came to life in the campaign. And, yeah. you know, some campaigns I can see that being totally sidelined and nothing made of her. But others, you know, maybe she comes to the fore. I don't know. Well, she certainly is in the game I'm running for How We Roll at the moment. Another interesting aspect of Tyrannish, which I think is one of the reasons why she sees my imagination, was the fact that she is this artefact of the Second Serpent Person Empire from tens of thousands of years ago. This creature that's come out of, of deep time, or you know, certainly eons past, is there as a representation of what serpent people used to be back when they had power. And you know, she sees the serpent people of the modern day as being sort of weak and degenerate. Um, she's you know there as an echo of this great past that they used to have. There's always a good thing I like using it for when I ran it is you could always get in that get your hands off me, you dirty ape. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we're talking about not just the campaign here, but how we actually went about developing it. Yeah. So I think it's important to note that the three of us live within about 15 miles or so of each other, we did at the time. Matt's a little further away now, but we're all pretty close geographically, and we all attend the same Milton Keynes role-playing games club and so on. And, and so we that, meet up fairly often And as we well. meet up pretty often. Mm -hmm. So we were able to meet in person, and Scott and I went on a long drive to Scotland, and we talked about elements of that first chapter together as I was developing Bolivia. And then I think, if memory serves me right, I ran Bolivia at the club, and then I think once I'd done playtesting, or maybe I was partway through playtesting that chapter, I'd hand it on to Scott and he'd run it, and then Matt would pick it up. So we'd all run the chapters and feedback to each other about how things went. And maybe, you know, I remember with Iceland, I ran it, and then I was finding that actually we could probably beef up these big monsters, these troll-like things. Um, and Scott, I think you, you beefed it up for your oh, yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, because your group turned up with a Lewis gun and killed it in one round. Well, you may be. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about armaments, I think we have to take our hats off to Matt's group, or Matt as keeper. <laughs> what did your group end up with, Matt? Well, they ended up with a uh, transport sphere that they picked up in Bolivia. Actually, the ruined remains of the transport sphere in Bolivia. And with their weird scientists in the group, managed to get it working again. So they built their own sphere. And being a weird scientist, they had a death ray, which, considering that they again upgraded it repeatedly throughout the course of the campaign and fitted it to the uh, floating transport sphere like a military artillery gun, yeah, they had a 
equivalent stats of an artillery gun from a warship mounted on the transports here at the end, which they used to take out the um, giant snake off the coast of Snake Island again in one round. Every week, me and Scott would be like, so Matt, how did your group deal with this threat? And he'd be like, death ray. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. But I think, again, there, it's, it's interesting to note that this was not really by design. This was just by our own personal ways of doing things with our own play groups that I think my group tended towards a perhaps a bit more low pulp game. Scott's was kind of in the middle and Matt's was very much high pulp flying around in a what amounted to a almost like a spacecraft with a death ray on it. Yeah, I, the, the way I saw it was your group was playing Call of Cthulhu Investigators. My group was playing Indiana Jones and um, Matt's group was Doc Savage or something. Yeah, dialed up to 11. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because again, I think it's interesting to note that my players at the club, they'd played Call of Cthulhu, but they'd never played Pulp, and yeah. nor had I, to be honest. I'd never played Pulp because, well, none of us had, you know, Pulp Cthulhu. Because it didn't exist before then. <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of expectations about how you might do it, but also there was a lot of things that came from the rules that changed how you did it because they changed the uh, mortality rate they changed the abilities and those things fed into how you played the game which is a good thing i think you can punch yeah. the after tap in the face and get away with it yay well you I, can in your game Matt. <laughs> <laughs> i want to double back and just uh, use something that matt said a moment ago as an example uh, the development process so you mentioned transport spheres in oh passing. yes let's explain what those are and then use this as an example for how things develop so the transport spheres are these artefacts that the serpent people use, these ancient bits of serpent person technology, that are basically these big glass spheres that fly all over the world containing equipment or serpent people or anything they need to take between continents. I mean, what are they, about 15 feet in diameter, 10 so feet in diameter? Uh, they're not huge, uh, right? There were a variety of sizes, yeah. but the big, the big ones were big enough to take a person or two. Yeah. And the way these came about in the first place, it was a completely throwaway thing. When I was developing the Iceland chapter, I knew I wanted to set something in Iceland because when we'd done our research on the serpent people, there was all this stuff about how they'd use the Vormis as a slave race. And Vormis are described as being troll-like. And we thought, oh, okay, it'd be nice to have something that involves the representation of these things as trolls. And I thought, we could set them somewhere in Scandinavia, and then I thought about it and thought, Iceland. Okay, we'll, we'll set it in Iceland. I then talked to Pedro Zelvani, the author of Mythic Iceland. He gave me all sorts of great advice. I mean, he was the one who suggested that I base it around the Snefels Jokol volcano. That's which, easy for you to say. <laughs> which became even more exciting once I realised it was the location of Journey to the Centre of the Earth. He then started telling me, you know, little bits about things that happened in the area. And one of the things was lots of UFO sightings, people seeing bright lights or bright, shiny objects moving through the sky to and from the volcano. And I thought, oh, OK, well, what if the serpent people are using the volcano as a base and moving stuff to and from there using these flying things? When I started playtesting your Bolivia chapter, I threw in a crash transport sphere as, as foreshadowing and as a way of getting some of their equipment into use, like the flame pistols. Yeah. Leading to my, my most fun single encounter in the game. Monkey with a flame gun. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, particularly if it explodes. That's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Um, but then, once we started thinking about the usefulness of them, the transport spheres then took on a key role. It became the mechanism whereby one of the antagonists was pursuing their plan. They cropped up all over the place. They became heavily used in Iceland and have become a frequent source of, of player character death in Iceland as people get into them and crash them. 300 miles into a wall. Yes. There's quite a lot of crossover there between the elements of the chapter because I think, I can't remember whose idea was it to use the Vormis, but the Vormis that I had in Bolivia as a slave race that were building the temples, you then picked up on and that sort of fed you to Iceland. You found out about the UFOs in Iceland. We incorporated them. You had a crashed one in Bolivia, so I incorporated it into the Bolivia chapter. Then Matt's characters are picking up on this as a way of travelling around the world. So each one of us headed up a particular chapter and did the bulk of the work on that chapter. There was a lot of to and fro between us about elements that we'd bring in 
and oh, perhaps yeah. you know we'd come up with a cool idea for a chapter and we'd be like oh i could have a bit of that in mind because it was a worldwide conspiracy well it wasn't just that but i mean we'd actively throw in ideas of of how different things could work or you know things that we could include in each other's chapters mm-hmm. so for example i remember you paul suggested the environmental suits that you know the really creepy fucking environmental suits <laughs> that people find in iceland <laughs> that, that was your suggestion and as soon as you pitched that to me i thought oh yeah yeah and really went to town and, and yeah but you were the one that made them look like giant babies got no 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 you 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 suggested that oh, did as I? well yep oh go me <laughs> but, i but, still have the memories of matt not um from milton Keynes. the only time a player encountered one of those environmental suits which we'll just point out for listeners who don't know this the, the environmental suits have a, a life of their own yeah and um, they're kind of like hollowed out people that the serpent people could wear as an environmental suit to keep them warm yeah but Matt not ran off in a bout of insanity it was, it was in Robin. the tunnels. It was Robin. Oh, was it Robin? It, yeah. Yes, okay. Ran off in one of the tunnels and encountered one of these things, but it's during a bout of insanity. <laughs> and then by the time he'd recovered, he'd left it behind. So he never really knew whether it was a real thing or not. <laughs> Whereas in my group, I think it was, I can't remember, it was either Alina or Lynn was undergoing a bout of madness and encountered an environmental suit and decided to wear it instead and was just going around wearing this babbling baby skin. But yeah, I mean, we bumped these ideas backwards and forwards the whole time. So I think in return, for example, I suggest in the Bolivia chapter that you open it up with Arturo getting shot in the head. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I think this back and forth, it's not like we're putting ideas wholesale into somebody else's chapter. We're putting an idea forward and I suggest something Matt might pick up on a bit of it. He might use it wholesale. I might put something in, then Scott sort of adds a bit to it, and then Matt writes it up or changes it. So it was a flexible process, but a good three-way way of working, I think, in the way that... I mean, and I kind of tend to use this process myself on my own work and bounce ideas off of my wife. And I'll kind of go through the premise of the scenario and she'll say, oh, what if this? What if that? And I won't necessarily use those ideas. Sometimes they spark a new idea or sometimes, you know, it's a great idea and I use it wholesale. But it's just something to break that log jam or to inspire ideas, I think. And, you know, having one or two other people, I mean, like, Noah and Matt Ryan, um, yeah. you know, who worked together on, on the um, one-page scenarios. Yeah, reckoningofthedead.com. I imagine they do something similar to that together. I don't actually know. We should ask, maybe. But, mm. you know, having having somebody else to work with, I think, is a really useful tool. Mm. I think it sort of went beyond that sounding board thing. Because we were all playtesting the entire campaign, you end up having to improvise little bits and details as things happen differently in your game. Or something will come up and you realise it doesn't quite work and you change it to something else. During our regular get-togethers, we'd feed back to each other about not not just how our playtest went and how the players you know, handle things, but the changes that we perhaps made on the fly or the additions that we made. And quite a lot of those ended up finding their way into the finished game. Oh, particularly your throwaway comment of the mafioso in the New York chapter of that he's killed more people than Spanish flu. I couldn't resist putting that in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another thing that uh, Mike Mason suggested to us, which we, I, I must admit we didn't actually use that much. I mean, we used it a bit, but for other groups of people collaborating or developing a campaign may be useful, was we set up a Pinterest board so that if there were any bits of inspirational art or pictures of locations or, or stuff like that, anything that may even act as, as guidelines for the artists later on, we could put it in there and have it as a shared resource. I mean, it doesn't have to be Pinterest. You're probably better off not using Pinterest because it's a bit shit. But having shared resources like that are invaluable. There were some things that suggested themselves as handouts through the game, such as the eye in one of the final chapters. I think I just drew one and gave it to the player just as a way of saying, this is what you see, just you. Because it had a magical effect, suddenly if he showed it to other people, it kind of dawned on me that actually if he lets other people see this, it's going to have an effect on them as well. And having the player holding it in their hands meant that the added sense that I could actually see if they showed it to somebody else. So obviously that became a handout. 
handouts were an interesting thing in this because I don't know about you two, but handouts are usually one of the things I think of last. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the handouts didn't really exist in a fleshed out form until you know, for my chapters until I got round to writing them up uh, for publication. What I tended to do instead during the playtest was come up with just placeholders, bullet points, or just a short note, you know, you find a letter that tells you in rough form this. Because, you know, I didn't know what I'd end up needing or what I didn't. Sometimes it would be things that I just realised I needed on the spot. And so I just tell the players what they found. Was that the case for you two as well? Yeah, I normally think handouts aren't normally the first thing in my mind. It's more of a case of when I get to the end of a scenario, I think, actually, yeah, what could be a handout here? And then I approach it was retroactively. We cover most things between the three of us, but that's something that gets left till the end, which is, I think, that's a failing for sure. The three things that I am terrible at, which always get left to the end, are handouts, stat blocks and maps. And maps are the worst thing to leave to the end. I know I try not to do it anymore. But when you've written up a description of a place and then you've got to make a map, that's a real pain in the arse way around to do it. It's much easier to think, okay, actually, I'm going to go and look for a map now or, or draw a map, then write it up. Equally with faces, it's a lot easier to find the image and then describe it rather than write a description and then try and find a, an image of a face that fits it. This is the thing I find useful about using real places. Google Earth is fantastic. Here, have a screenshot. There's a place. I found some nice maps of the Congo in the 1930s. I went, here you go. <laughs> yeah, but that Google Street View you found of Lang, I mean, just, you know, that's pretty weird. I, actually, let's go back to that as well. I mean, there were other reasons why we chose some of these places that may be less obvious. So the Belgian Congo was perhaps what we were saying earlier about wanting a fairly, not, not light-hearted, but at least not too dour action campaign. Because that place is a barrel of laughs. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. I'm not sure where this is going. What? <laughs> it, it didn't seem like the most obvious place. But if I remember correctly, the reason it came up was when we were bouncing ideas backwards and forwards in our initial session was that I said, oh, we have to have dinosaurs in this. And I'd mentioned having read some articles on cryptozoology about people who to this day go hunting for dinosaurs in the Congo. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there's shitloads of them. Yeah, apparently just hiding out there. And mosasaurs in the rivers. Um, it's more, more of a documentary than, uh, than fiction there, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's an example of how the decision to include a location can come about because of, not necessarily because the location itself appeals, but because something about it is really interesting. It screamed Heart of Darkness with dinosaurs. What could go wrong? Uh, yeah, so similarly, you know, the fact that, not the climax, but a bit before the climax, takes place on Snake Island off the coast of Brazil came about purely because during the development process I'd happened to stumble across a documentary about Snake Island and thought, yeah, again, this absolutely has to go into the campaign. Well, you were going to have it on an island or something like that around that location and then I remember you going, bloody hell, there's a place called Snake Island. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was like it was written for their campaign. So that well, was just kind of lucky chance, really, acting oh, on that. So from the development point of view, obviously we're talking very much in, in a lot of these terms about how we developed stuff because we were writing it up for publication. How do you think it would have differed if we'd been just creating this campaign for our, our own entertainment? Well, I don't know that I would have done that with two other people. I mean, what would be the point mm -hmm. of developing? Sure, I could develop a campaign for my own entertainment. I've done that. But to develop with two other GMs, if you're not going to publish it or do anything with it, I don't know, why would you do that? No, I, I agree. But let's frame that slightly differently. If you were developing this on your own for your own entertainment, let's just say, you know, it's just the chapters that you were working on or, you know, some parallel campaign sure. that used elements. How would that process have been different for you? Bullet points, more of them. Yeah. Not huge lengths of written text explaining options. And no need for playtest notes either. Yeah, and not having to pass on that scenario information to one of you guys would mean that, you know, the notes would have to be, wouldn't necessarily be so in-depth. I mean, that's that's the main difference. I mean, there's these three layers of writing. One is just bullet notes and just like little ideas and sketch notes for yourself that you'd run at your own table. The second is enough that you could give to a friend that you know and they'd know some of your terminology and shorthand but you've got to flesh things out a bit more and obviously the third tier is you're writing for somebody that you don't know for publication obviously that's a lot more work 
It certainly transformed the way I approached it in exactly that way. I'm when I'm writing stuff just for my own entertainment, as you know, I've mentioned many times in the podcast, it tends to be a few paragraphs or a bunch of bullet points. With the Iceland chapter in particular, I remember I, I think it was the first time I'd ever done this that what we play tested was almost a full draft of that chapter. I'd written it up almost in its entirety when we play tested it. Minus the map. Yeah, mi- minus the map, of course. <laughs> It was a very, very different way of working for me. And I was surprised at how well I got on with it. Yeah, it worked well. I mean, I was going to say that whether you can really call some of what we did playtesting, I think is questionable because I think quite a lot of them were more at that second tier level where you're writing it for somebody you know. So it's kind of more like development. Sometimes big plot elements just came out of nowhere, out of a moment of inspiration. Whereas some of the parts, like you said, like your Iceland chapter was actually play testing it was pretty much written up so it's pretty much play testing proper where you've got the finished thing and you actually play test it i remember thinking about the way a single moment of improvisation can change the entire campaign when i was play testing your north borneo chapter matt the thing that had the biggest impact was getting to the end of that chapter and the whole thing involves the outbreak of a disease in north borneo an inhuman disease that does really horrible things and is basically incurable. We'd got to the end of the chapter, and one of the heroes was infected with the disease. Oh, yeah. And we thought, ooh, um, you know, is, is there going to be some weird science way of doing this? Are they going to be able to use a combination of weird science and medicine, but no one had that combination? Well, she could die. Or alternatively, Caduceus could try to save her as part of an experimental medical procedure. Mm. We're through in this idea that they'd learnt the secret of, of hybridising serpent people and human beings from Tyrannish, and were experimenting with that. Yes, we, I think we put in there originally that part of the seed for the idea for the Yellow Death of Me actually came from an old Doctor Who episode called Doctor Who and the Salurians, where there's a disease released in that that they use specifically to thin human populations when they became a problem above ground. And think, well, obviously the serpent people have got to be immune to this thing themselves. So, make someone part serpent person, they get the immunity. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that ended up becoming a huge part of the game for at least two of the playtests. I don't think any of your characters got... No, I think I was perhaps ahead of you guys in the, yeah. in the running of the game, and that didn't really feature so much. Um, that became a, more of a thing through the, the development of the, the campaign. It occurs to me that one of the potential pitfalls of this process with three people or or two people or whatever is not quite agreeing on the agendas of factions so you know this whole thing of caduceus you know this serpent people cult what is their relationship with humans you know so one of us for example might have them totally against humans another person might be working with them hand in hand with humans another person might be you know they might be co-opting humans and sometimes you end up with different authors having a slightly different or radically different stance on those things so i think yeah it's particularly when it's agendas of factions or characters it's important to agree on those and not have to thrash it out towards the end i don't think this was a major issue but i, I remember it being a bit of an issue at times yeah that was one of the advantages of us having regular meetings, which was we could thrash through things like that. It only, I think, became an issue where we sort of build on that in the later chapters. I mean, if someone did something or stated something in, in a chapter during a playtest that we decided that we weren't later going to use or didn't quite mesh with the way the rest of us saw the campaign, then it was usually fairly easy just to say, all right, well, when we come to writing it up, we'll we'll do it differently. But if it had shaped the outcome of the playtest, then, yeah, it did potentially have some problems there. I don't remember it actually causing any real problems, though. Another thing that kind of occurred to me during the writing of the campaign, or, you know, certainly thinking about it afterwards, and I don't know if the two of you encountered this, was sort of putting in ideas as placeholders is sort of right i need to flesh this out later let's put this in just as a placeholder for the time being and then uh, sometime later going back to it and realizing that it had just become part of the game i mean the one that, that, that really springs to mind for me was the name the inner knight i was always looking for a better name i, I sort of came up with that almost as a joke to put that in there because it was a reference to 
Arthur Macken, by way of the music of Current 93, who did all sorts of stuff about the inmost night, riffing off um, Arthur Macken's story, The Inmost Light. I just put it in there because I couldn't think of anything better to do, and it just sort of stuck. Mm. I think it worked fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was quite mm. happy with that. Yeah, I didn't have any issue because it kind of riffed on Sathogwa being a force of darkness, etc. Another thing that happened as we were developing it and playtesting some of the chapters was we realised that actually, you know, we can shuffle these chapters around. Maybe it'd be better if your chapter actually came earlier and after that one because that kind of makes more sense. And, you know, what if the players go to that one first? Because we had quite an open structure of the places where people might pick up on things and travel to. There was a order of missions given to them by Caduceus, but... Also, there was the reveal about Caduceus and when they're going to ask themselves some fundamental questions about who they're actually working for. And different groups and different GMs are going to latch on to that at different times. So the structure we kind of wanted to make reasonably flexible, but we also had to consider the order that we were going to present it in the book. There were a few big changes that we made during the development process. One was initially the Iceland chapter came before Oklahoma, but there's potential for a big reveal in the Iceland chapter that it sort of made sense to put later than Oklahoma, and so we shuffled those around to change the order there. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Similarly, I think with your New York chapter, initially it was much more monolithic, wasn't it, rather than being drip-fed between... Yeah, uh, I think think we decided eventually it wouldn't be just a nice idea that hasn't been done before to split it between chapters, not present it as a single, you do this, now you're on to the next chapter, but you actually keep coming back to the chapter as almost like a downtime exercise. Yeah. I think that was strengthened by the fact that they were working for a group, so they'd go back to the base each time, and the base being in New York, coupled with the investigator development phase, meant they kept coming back to New York. So if there was a thread running in New York, which you took on, Matt? It made it really cool because initially it seemed like the downtime was just going to be a chance to do the hero development phase and you know just tick a few boxes, roll a few dice, and get your next mission briefing. And then as it went on, because of the way we'd structured the reveals and the other stuff that was going on, those downtimes between the main missions actually, certainly at least for my group, became the main part of the campaign. (laughs) And there was also initially going to be another chapter. We decided we were going to do nine chapters and do three chapters each. But there was initially another kind of plot thread that instead of snake island being guarded by another giant snake it was originally potentially going to be guarded by deep ones riding a giant serpent that was very cool yes 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 but i think that's probably just as well to leave that out because i mean deep ones as much as i love them you know they've been used in a lot of other things and it would be a faction you know quite apart Potentially. I mean, the way that I was looking at bringing them in was that you're having an earlier chapter set in Hong Kong, Mm. because I've always wanted to write something set in Hong Kong, because I come from Hong Kong and I've just never actually written anything there. I figured because Hong Kong is made up of lots and lots and lots of islands, that Deep Ones would be a fairly logical thing to have there. And it'd be kind of cool to have Caduceus basically going there, trying to court the Deep Ones into acting as guards for Snake Island and having the the player characters caught up in the middle of this. But yeah, yeah, we, we just ended up dropping that, which I vaguely regret. And then once we'd done all the development and it really came down to the the writing of it, which took a long time, and we used Google Docs to work on and leave comments for each other and edit each other's work. So there was a kind of a three-way rotation of the writing and the chapters. And as we reached an end with that, uh, Mike Mason was also working on editing it and it was being sent out to some other readers who would give us some feedback and we'd incorporate those ideas. As is often the way, you know, those last few steps of writing took a long time. But Oh, God, you know, yes. yeah. I mean, Easily we, six months, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we got to the stage where the vast majority of the writing was done, everything was play-tested, and it was just a question of, of finishing the write-up and going through doing, you know, things like the stat blocks, doing the maps, details of, of names and, and temperatures and plant life and the kinds of things that the investigators or the heroes would expect to find around there. What does it feel or sound like walking through the jungle? And yeah, that took a long time. That's, again, an, a question which I'm, I'm always on the fence about, which is how much of that stuff to put into a scenario. Hmm. 
Because I think there's a fine line. I mean, you want to provide enough information that if the players go off track and they need to improvise stuff, that you've given them enough groundwork that they can bring the place to life. But at the same time, what are your opinions? I mean, I find too much of that stuff overwhelming. Yeah, this is something actually I found when running Beyond the Mountains of Madness recently, that there can be so much material to absorb that you just suddenly blank everything out. There's a point where you hit overload and it's... ah. I'm more for the minimalist approach. Give them key themes, feels for the area, then just let them make shit up. And of course, the other big thing that we had to do at this stage was check for continuity. I mean, this was part of the editing process. But with three different writers, I kept finding things where we decided one thing during an early part of the writing process, we changed our minds about it, and both things were still referenced in the text. Mm. And it was an absolute arsehole going through finding all those. During issue six change. No, I think we were quite good about catching that one, but I mean, there there were certain things on the history of the Second Serpent Person Empire, for example. Oh, yeah, getting the terms right, the dates right, locations. And also having a name like Tyrannish. Having the spelling of it. (laughs) It's spelled with so many different combinations of letters. Two uh, R's, two S's, two H's, two Y's. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually getting an agreed format for that was good. Even the names of some of the artefacts. Yeah. We called them some things in some chapters, we called them something else. And just remembering that, oh, actually, when we refer to the flame cannon and the flame lance, those are actually the same thing. <laughs> and there is no such thing as the Cthulhu bomb anymore. <laughs> so to wrap that section up, what can we say about writing scenarios, developing scenarios yourself? Most people, unless they're writing for publication, are going to be writing for that own usage which is very different to what we did but continuity finding ideas running with ideas bouncing them off other people those are the things i would recommend and if you've just got a player group then talk to them about not reveals but ask them what they think might be going on and bounce off that or if they've got ideas for their characters and things they want to do think about how that can feed into your ideas for the campaign I mean, certainly the biggest difference for me with doing something like this, well, A, because it's a collaboration, and B, because it's for publication, and the kind of stuff that I write to run at the club, it's not just the degree of detail, it's not just the fact that it's normally bullet points, but it's the fact that if I'm doing something like that, I'll do it as I go along. I'll basically come up with, Mm. you know, say all the stuff that we had in the introduction, all the backstory, or putting all the factions in place, a few key locations, stuff like that. But as far as the actual development of of events goes, that I'll kind of do all that as I go along because I'll see what the player characters are doing or what the players are doing, what they find interesting, what paths they want to follow. And then I'll build the campaign around that. And I'll also build it much more around the player characters themselves and their backstories. With something like this, it's a bit harder because trying to make it generic, trying to make it fit every group or as many groups as possible, means that at the same time you kind of lose a lot of that flexibility. Meanwhile, on social media... People have been saying stuff about us again out there in the lands of social media, and particularly in relation to our recent episode about Neartholotep. Daniel Carroll over on G Plus says... One way of explaining any of Neartholotep's seemingly benevolent actions could be the butterfly effect. For instance, by helping the good guys win today, it might inspire the ultimate evil to rise up sometime in the future. I like that. I think he's got the he's got the bigger picture and the long game in mind. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good because it also ties in perhaps with the you know, unknowability of his schemes. It means that you're not beholden to providing sort of immediate consequences for things or immediately understandable goals. Mm-hmm. And Tor Nielsen over on G Plus said, Nalathotep is essentially the devil in a cosmology where he isn't the adversary or a rebel doomed to fail. He is the house and always wins. The cosmos is a game of chess he plays with himself and the pieces crumble and self-destruct in the most interesting ways. Yeah, I like that. We're all pawns. <laughs> and Brett Kramer on Google Plus said, You mused about how people might react to Jesus as an avatar of Neolithotep. See Kevin Ross's short Dreamlands campaign, The Dreaming Stone, uh, which I, I've, I've never played or read, but I'm, I'm now intrigued. I've got a copy of it, but I've never read it on the basis of hoping someone would run it for me. Well, <laughs> but you now know one aspect of it. Yay! 
<laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> and there was a fantastic, uh, extremely lengthy comment from Forrester Gary about the nature of Neolithotep's avatars, which, as much as we'd love to read it out on the podcast because it's, it's excellent, uh, is just simply too long. So instead of that, uh, we'll link to it from the show notes. Go read it. And what are our final thoughts about the Two-Headed Serpent? Scott, you've talked about how you're running the campaign for How We Roll. Now, are you running it from the book or from your memories of the campaign? No, I'm running it from the book. And the reason for that is that this isn't just you know, like me running it for a group of friends. I mean, this is going out as an actual play podcast and it's giving perhaps other keepers out there who are planning to run it themselves a chance to hear an example of it in play. And I felt that if I deviated too much from what's in the text, then it wouldn't be that useful to them. On the other hand, I am changing certain elements of it because I, I get bored easily. No, but um, I think that's how you, anybody should run it, right? Yeah. And that's an illustrating how I would recommend running it is, is being free to change certain parts. So I think that's commendable, you know, to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, for example, as I mentioned, I'm beefing up Tyrannish's role a fair bit and finding her to be a, a more interesting plot device this time around because I think I've got a better handle on what she does in the campaign, which mm. hadn't been established as much when we were writing it up. Yeah, it must be quite interesting to actually run it again now. It's a finished thing because we were yeah. always running a kind of proto form of it, um, never the actual finished product. Some of the chapters changed an awful lot during development. So, um, I mean, for example, um, your North Borneo chapter changed. A, I mean, not spectacularly, but certain elements of it changed oh, quite a yeah. lot. Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, I mean, the Oklahoma chapter, you simplified an awful lot after the initial pass. Hmm. Going back to those this time round, I'm finding them both easier and harder to run i mean the easier part comes about because they're better structured now and we've got the bugs out the harder part is because it's a full write-up i actually find it harder running a game from a full write-up than i do from bullet points and because i am trying to stick to what's in the campaign that plays less to my strengths of just making shit up so yeah it's it's a, it's a balance and as we promised earlier in the show we have a copy to give away to one listener. We've been scratching our heads. We thought about going for what we did before and asking people just to share the post on social media. I mean, obviously, if you want to do that, we would be absolutely delighted. So please share away. But that's not going to be the competition this time. Instead, what we would like you to do is give us a short one paragraph write up or, or, or outline of a pop hero who you think would be exciting to play in Pop Cthulhu. We'll gather all those together, we'll choose our favourite out of them, and we'll publish our three favourites on a blog post on blasphemoustomes.com. I think I'd like to see a name. I'd like them to be suitable for playing Two-Headed Serpent, so early 1930s beginning, and you know, some idea of their character type and skills and so on. Death Ray's optional. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> They can't all be weird scientists. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but they could have nicked a death ray off another weird scientist. Fair enough. Death ray's mandatory. There you go. <laughs> well, we look forward to uh, receiving those and we'll have more details of that competition on the website with the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much. And it's a good night from me. A cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous tomes.com mm-hmm.